Chapter One of The Pretty Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. Chapter One The Promenade. The piece was a West End success so brilliant that even if you belonged to the intellectual despisers of the British theatre, you could not hold up your head in the world unless you had seen it. Even for such as you, it was undeniably a success of curiosity at least. The stage scene flamed extravagantly with crude orange and viridian light, a rectangle of bedazzling illumination. On the boards, in the midst of great width, with great depth behind them and arching height above, tiny squeaking figures ogled the primeval passion in gesture and innuendo. From the arc of the upper circle, convergent beams of light pierced through gloom and broke violently on this group of the half-clad lovely and the swathed grotesque. The group did not quail. In fullest publicity, it was licensed to say that which in private could not be said where men and women meet, and that which could not be printed. It gave a voice to the silent appeal of pictures and posters and illustrated weeklies all over the town. It disturbed the silence of the most secret groves in the vast, undiscovered hearts of men and women, young and old. The half-clad lovely were protected from the satires in the audience by an impalpable screen made of light and of ascending music in which strings, brass and concussion exemplified the naive sensuality of lyrical niggers. The guffaw, which, occasionally leaping sharply out of the dim, mysterious auditorium, surged round the silhouetted conductor and drove like a cyclone between the barriers of plush and gilt and fat cupids onto the stage. This huge guffaw seemed to indicate what might have happened if the magic protection of the impalpable screen had not been there. Behind the audience came the restless promenade. Where was the reality which the stage reflected? There it was, multitudinous, obtainable, seizable, dumbly imploring to be carried off. The stage, very daring, yet dared no more than hint at the existence of the bright and joyous reality. But there it was, under the same roof. Christine entered with Madame Larivaudière. Between shoulders and broad hats, as through a telescope, she glimpsed in the far distance the elusive glowing oblong of the stage, then the silhouetted conductor and the tops of instruments, then the dark curved concentric rows of spectators. Lastly, she took in the promenade in which she stood. She surveyed the promenade with a professional eye. It instantly shocked her, not as it might have shocked one ignorant of human nature and history, but by reason of its frigidity, its constraint, its solemnity, its pretense. In one glance she embraced all the figures, moving or stationary, against the hedge of shoulders in front and against the mirrors behind, all of them, the programme girls, the cigarette girls, the chocolate girls, the cloakroom girls, the waiters, the overseers, as well as the vivid courtesans and their clientele in black, tweed or khaki. With scarcely an exception, they all had the same strange look, the same absence of gesture. They were northern, blonde, self-contained, terribly impassive. Christine impulsively exclaimed, and the faint cry was dragged out of her, out of the bottom of her heart by what she saw. My God, how mournful it is! Lisa Larivaudière, a stout and benevolent Bruxelloise, 
agreed with uncomprehending indulgence. The two chatted together for a few moments, each ceremoniously addressing the other as Madame, Madame, and then they parted, insinuating themselves separately into the slow, confused traffic of the promenade. End of chapter one. Chapter two. The power. Christine knew Piccadilly, Leicester Square, Regent Street, a bit of Oxford Street, the Green Park, Hyde Park, Victoria Station, Charing Cross. Beyond these, London, measureless as the future and the past, surrounded her with the unknown. But she had not been afraid, because of her conviction that men were much the same everywhere, and that she had power over them. She did not exercise this power consciously. She had merely to exist, and it exercised itself. For her, this power was the mystical central fact of the universe. Now, however, as she stood in the promenade, it seemed to her that something uncanny had happened to the universe. Surely it had shifted from its pivot. Her basic conviction trembled. Men were not the same everywhere, and her power over them was a delusion. Englishmen were incomprehensible. They were not human, they were apart. The memory of the hundreds of Englishmen who had yielded to her power in Paris, for she had specialised in travelling Englishmen, could not re-establish her conviction as to the sameness of men. The presence of her professed rivals of various nationalities in the promenade could not restore it either. The promenade, in its cold, prim languor, was the very negation of desire. She was afraid. She foresaw ruin for herself in this London, inclement, misty and inscrutable. And then she noticed a man looking at her, and she was herself again, and the universe was itself again. She had a sensation of warmth and heavenly reassurance, just as though she had drunk an anisette or a creme de menthe. Her features took on an innocent expression. The characteristic puckering of the brows denoted not discontent, but a gentle concern for the whole world, and also virginal curiosity. The man passed her. She did not stir. Presently he emerged afresh out of the moving knots of promenaders and discreetly approached her. She did not smile, but her eyes lighted with a faint amiable benevolence, scarcely perceptible, doubtful, deniable even, but enough. The man stopped. She at once gave a frank, kind smile which changed all her face. He raised his hat an inch or so. She liked men to raise their hats. Clearly he was a gentleman of means, though in morning dress. His cigar had a very fine aroma. She clasped him in half a second, and was happy. He spoke to her in French with a slight unmistakable English accent, but very good, easy, conversational French. French French. She responded almost ecstatically. Ah, you speak French. She was too excited to play the usual comedy, so flattering to most Englishmen, of pretending that she thought from his speech that he was a Frenchman. The French, so well spoken from a man's mouth in London, most marvellously enheartened her and encouraged her in the perilous enterprise of her career. She was candidly grateful to him for speaking French. He said after a moment, You have not at all a fatigued air, but would it not be preferable to sit down? A man of the world, he could phrase his politeness. Ah, there were none like an Englishman of the world. Frenchmen, delightfully courteous up to a point, were unsatisfactory past that point. 
Frenchmen of the South were detestable, and she hated them. "'You have not been in London long?' said the man, leading her away to the lounge. She observed then that, despite his national phlegm, he was in a state of rather intense excitation. Luck, enormous luck, and also an augury for the future. She was professing in London for the first time in her life. She had not been in the promenade for five minutes, and lo, an ideal Amara. For he was not young. What a fine omen for her profound mysticism and superstitiousness. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 The Flat Her flat was in Cork Street. As soon as they entered it, the man remarked on its warmth and its cosiness, so agreeable after the November streets. Christine only smiled. It was a long, narrow flat, a small sitting-room with a piano and a sideboard, opening to a larger bedroom shaped like a thick L. The short top of the L, not cut off from the rest of the room, was installed as a cabinet de toilette, but it had a divan. From the divan, behind which was a heavily curtained window, you could see right through the flat to the curtained window of the sitting-room. All the lights were softened by paper shades of a peculiar hot tint between Indian red and carmine, giving a rich, romantic effect to the gleaming, pale, enamelled furniture, and to the voluptuous engravings after Sir Frederick Leighton, and the sweet, sentimental engravings after Marcus Stone, and to the assorted knick-knacks. The flat had homogeneity, for everything in it, except the stove, which had been bought at one shop in Tottenham Court Road by a landlord who knew his business. The stove, which was large, stood in the bedroom fireplace, and thence radiated celestial comfort and security throughout the home. The stove was the divinity of the home, and Christine the priestess. She had herself bought the stove, and she understood its personality. It was one of your finite gods. "'Will you take something?' she asked, the hostess. Whiskey and a siphon and glasses were on the sideboard. Oh, no, thanks. Not even a cigarette? Holding out the box and looking up at him, she appealed with a long, anxious glance that he should honour her cigarettes. Thank you, he said. I should like a cigarette very much. She lit a match for him. But you, do you not smoke? Yes, sometimes. Try one of mine for a change. He produced a long, thin, gold cigarette case stuffed with cigarettes. She lit a cigarette from his. Oh, she cried after a few violent puffs, I like enormously your cigarettes. Where are they to be found? Look, said he, I will put these few in your box. And he poured twenty cigarettes into an empty compartment of the box, which was divided into two. Not all, she protested. Yes. But I say no. She insisted with a gesture suddenly firm, and put a single cigarette back into his case, and shut the case with a snap, and herself returned it to his pocket. One ought never to be without a cigarette. He said, You understand life. How nice it is here. He looked about and then sighed. But why do you sigh? Sigh of content. I was just thinking this place would be something else if an English girl had it. It is curious, lamentable, that English girls understand nothing, certainly not love. As for that, I have always heard so. They understand nothing, not even warmth. One is cold in their rooms. 
as for that i mean warmth one may say that i understand it i do you understand more than warmth what is your name christine she was the accidental daughter of a daughter of joy the mother as frequently happens in these cases dreamed of perfect respectability for her child and kept christine in the country far away in paris meaning to provide a good diary in due course at forty-two she had not got the diary together nor even begun to get it together and she was ill feckless dilatory and extravagant she saw as in a vision her own shortcomings and how they might involve disaster for christine christine she perceived was a girl imperfectly educated for in the affair of christine's education the mother had not aimed high enough indolent but economical affectionate and with a very great deal of temperament actuated by deep maternal solicitude she brought her daughter back to paris and had her inducted into the profession under the most decent auspices at nineteen christine's second education was complete most of it the mother had left to others from a sense of propriety but she herself had instructed christine concerning the five great plagues of the profession and also she had adjured her never to drink alcohol save professionally never to invest in anything save bonds of the city of paris never to seek celebrity which according to the mother meant ultimate ruin never to mix intimately with other women she had expounded the great theory that generosity towards men in small things is always repaid by generosity in big things and if it is not the loss is so slight and she taught her the fundamental differences between nationalities with a russian you had to eat drink and listen with a german you had to flatter and yet adroitly insert do not imagine that i am here for the fun of the thing with an italian you must begin with finance with a frenchman you must discuss finance before it is too late with an englishman you must talk for he will not but in no circumstances touch a finance until he has mentioned it in each case there was a risk but the risk should be faced the course of instruction finished christine's mother had died with a clear conscience and a mind consoled said christine conversational putting the question that lips seemed then to articulate of themselves in obedience to its imperious demand for utterance how long do you think the war will last the man answered with serenity the war has not even begun yet how english you are but all the same i asked myself whether you would say that if you had seen belgium i came here from ostend last month the man gazed at her with new vivacious interest so it is like that that you are here but do not let us talk about it she added quickly with a mournful smile no no he agreed i see you have a piano i expect you are fond of music ah she exclaimed in a fresh relieved tone am i fond of it i adore it quite simply do play for me play a boston a two-step i can't he said but you play i am sure of it and you he parried she made a sad negative sign well i'll play something out of the de rosen cavalier ah but you are a musician she amiably scrutinized him and yet no smiling he too made a sad negative sign the waltz out of the rosen cavalier eh 
Oh, yes, a waltz. I prefer waltzes to anything. As soon as he played a few bars, she passed demurely out of the sitting room, through the main part of the bedroom, into the cabinet de toilette. She moved about in the cabinet de toilette, thinking that the waltz out of the Rosen Cavalier was divinely exciting. The delicate sound of her movements and the plash of water came to him across the bedroom. As he played, he threw a glance at her now and then. He could see well enough, but not very well because the smoke of the shortening cigarette was in his eyes. She returned at length into the sitting-room, carrying a small silk bag about five inches by three. The waltz finished. "'But you'll take cold,' he murmured. "'No, at home I never take cold. Besides,' smiling at him as he swung round on the music-stool, she undid the bag and drew from it some folded stuff which she slowly shook out, rather in the manner of a conjurer, until it was revealed as a full-size kimono. She laughed. Is it not marvellous? It is. That is what I wear. In the way of chiffons, it is the only fantasy I have bought up to the present in London. Of course, clothes. I have been forced to buy clothes. It matches exquisitely the stockings, eh? She slid her arms into the sleeves of the transparency. She was a pretty and highly developed girl of twenty-six, short, still lissom, but with a fear of corpulence in her heart. She had beautiful hair and beautiful eyes, and she had that pucker of the forehead denoting, according to circumstances, either some kindly grave preoccupation or a benevolent perplexity about something or other. She went near him and clasped hands round his neck and whispered, Your waltz was adorable. You are an artist. And with her shoulders she seemed to sketch the movements of dancing. End of chapter 3